0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports with all kinds of interesting people, executives, and investors, and athletes, and entrepreneurs, et cetera. I'm Tom Richardson, and I usually do the show, as everybody knows, or most of you know, with my partner, Joe Favorita. But Joe is traveling, so I'm going solo today. And it's unfortunate because we have a mutual friend as a guest Someone we've been hoping to have on the show for a while, but schedule wise, it's been tr- tricky to work out. And ironically, it happened the week Joe is traveling. But we're pleased.
1: Or not, or not so ironically.
0: Or either. maybe, yeah, depending on how you look at it. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome Dan Cohn from Octagon to the CUSP show. What's up, Dan?
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a while, a long time coming, and I yes, appreciate and the invite. Yes, and
0: we have a lot to talk about. <clears throat> you know, when I was just refreshing my. Memory in your background, I was on LinkedIn, and the first thing that popped up was that you and I have guess how many mutual connections we have? Oh my
1: goodness. I'm going to go 411. Okay.
0: Well, not quite that high, but it was like 260 something. And it's just a reminder sometimes of people that you uh, have gotten to know in the industry how interconnected all these relationships are. So um, Dan and I had the pleasure of working together when he was at Bloomberg 1st so We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But Dan's had a really interesting path coming out of GW back. Not too long ago.
1: Hell to the buff, hell to the blue.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's start off, Dan, with um, there's a lot to talk about what's going on in media rights and media rights consulting and the media business and disruption and streaming and OTT and all the stuff we usually like to talk about on the show. But let's get to know you a little bit. So tell us uh, a brief version of the Dan Cohen story. The
1: Dan Cohen story. So I'll start with my Twitter handle is at another Dan Cohen. <laughs> okay, good. Because there are many Dan Cohen stories out there. Uh kind of like the John Smith of uh the Jewish world, if you will. <laughs> oh, that's great. So yeah. where did where did it all start? And, and you see?
0: were forced to pick that Twitter handle for for that reason? I think so. Okay.
1: I think so. The uh the story begins as a freshman at George Washington. So I uh I went there actually to play baseball, truth be told. You were uh, recruited,
0: legitimately recruited? I was. Okay.
1: But, uh, but for the listeners who can't see me I'm not exactly the biggest guy uh, in the bullpen right so uh, the the opportunity to start every day and play every day was quite limiting I think you could probably count on one hand you got Greenberg kofax uh, Sean green there's so many green. of us right. yeah. out there uh, so my my major league baseball aspirations were cut short uh, but I think you know one one kind of theme if we have themes throughout this conversation that I'd love to to convey is is that a lot of a lot of luck, a lot of success is based on luck and timing, mm-hmm. right? And and I was really lucky. Uh, lost the 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 playing scholarship, gained an academic scholarship, but it wasn't quite the same amount of money. You need to bartend to be able to take these girls out for dinners, and I bartended a private party of which some Major League Baseball officials were attending in Georgetown. Turns out they were trying to move the Montreal Expos down to. Washington, wow, D.C. that's great. Yeah, it was, and, and so I I begged, borrowed, and, and, and did steal a business card to try to get in touch with these gentlemen, these high political, politically powered folks that I just wanted to lick stamps. Anything I could do to get back into baseball because I wasn't playing it anymore. Uh, and after three weeks of emails that went unresponded to and many Snapple facts that I tried to convey, they, uh, I just showed up at, at Jeff Zion's office and Winston Lord, who started a lobbyist group. And this lobbyist group was trying to get Major League Baseball to pick D.C. as the city uh, wow. of destination for Montreal. And uh, he said, "Did you have any
0: vague notions of what the sports business was?" Not so at there's all. there's playing baseball in the field, and there's working in a front office or or an actual team. But had you really thought about that?
1: Not at all. And this wasn't even working for a team. This was this was a, a bunch oh, this of this is
0: free team. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This
1: was how do we lobby Major League Baseball? Jerry Reinsdorf and the MLB Relocation Committee, Bob Dupay and Bud Selig. To move a team to D.C. instead of other locations like Las Vegas, Puerto Rico, places in Texas, Northern Virginia. So, truth be told, waited in the lobby for one of their execs to come down in the Watergate building. Introduced myself as Daniel Cohen. I think this is a PG show that you have. It's actually PG-13. Okay. Well, the response I got was, you're that blank kid who keeps emailing me. What do you want? And I explained, I just wanted an opportunity to work for him and his group uh, to, to, to do anything, mm-hmm. really. Clean the floor, sweep, whatever it might be. Fast forward, uh, join the lobbyist group. We, we are successful in lobbying Major League Baseball to bring baseball back to the nation's capital. It was a natural transformation to become an, an ownership group, seeking to buy the team. We were a very competitive group. Ultimately, though, we, we ended up losing to the Learners, who are the current owners. Uh, but I was brought on by, by that group as well to help out in a whole bunch of different things. I did some some communications work. I did some marketing work, some sales work, a lot of finance-related work, studying infrastructure and spend around a new team coming, eminent domain issues. I had worked with the mayor's office a lot in that lobbying role. So mm-hmm. it was a little bit of everything, and it opened my eyes. And I said, once I got the taste of working in sports, I had to stay in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and after five years of, of doing that, four or five years of doing that.
0: Uh, did you, let me just ask you quickly. Yeah. Did, did you learn something about yourself in terms of functional areas to pursue? Like uh, you were good at X, Y, and Z, like sales, biz dev, strategy, whatever?
1: I, I learned, I learned, definitely learned what I wasn't good at. Which by default taught me what I maybe could be good okay. at. Okay, what was uh, that? I, I, was not, uh, a, I was not a scout. I was not a baseball operations, player development right. kind of guy. I didn't have the eye for who's got the best 12 to 6 curveball uh, out of high school. I definitely understood that I was more analytically minded and interested in, in that part. And I also liked the, the new challenges of building relationships. Uh, and growing and investing time in those relationships. So for a brand new business to a market that hadn't been a baseball market for many, many years, relationship building was a big piece of that, whether it be on the government side, on the corporate partnership side, uh, or other stakeholders that would be involved with moving a team there. So I knew I knew relationships, as you pointed out, kind of business development, finance, analytics, those were kind of the areas mm-hmm. I loved. Okay. Uh, which took me to finance. So I, 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 I did... I did live on a hot dog and ramen noodle diet for quite some time. I think everyone who's probably listening can attest to their first jobs they had right. in sports. It wasn't gonna make them rich too quickly. Right. And this is where I kinda go back to that luck piece, Tom, where I, I, was, I was really lucky, right? I go to work in, in finance in New York and I get introduced to some really smart, savvy entrepreneurs uh, who are gonna start this Bloomberg sports business. And within the span of our first year, we had commoditized data in a way back in 2007-2008. Technology had just finally allowed us to. And taken an idea like a Bloomberg Financial Terminal and put that into practice in the real sports world. And that business grew out to be a, a media company delivering content and new software technology solutions to global media players. Uh, betting, fantasy, B two B solutions—you right. know it. Yeah. all well. Couldn't. Have by the
0: way, everybody, that was Bloomberg Sports. You're talking about.
1: Yes, and couldn't couldn't have done it without you, Tom. Well, so, thank you.
0: Uh, uh, I mean, no, I mean, the, the team there was really impressive. So Bill squadron. squadron and yeah. Bo Moon and Steve Orban, Jay, JB yeah. yeah. Lee, Joe was involved.
1: Absolutely, but we had a great. Time. <laughs> it seems like about twenty years ago, by the way. It was, <laughs> but what a, we had a great successful exit, right? Uh, and that's where I got quite lucky again. So our bankers that actually sold Bloomberg Sports are who introduced uh, me to a gentleman named Andrea Rajrazani. Andrea was an incredibly successful European media tycoon who had co-started MP and Silva uh, with Ricardo Silva. And candidly, I had never heard of MP and Silva before. I thought they were an architecture firm, maybe a law firm. It turns out they were doing $700-plus million a year in revenue buying and selling international sports media rights. Mm -hmm. And they really hadn't had a presence in the Americas. And the U.S. market was a key area that they wanted to finally tap into. So I was definitely an unconventional hire. Again, a bit lucky. Got to be smart, but right time, right place. And Andrea Peter Hutton, who's Mm -hmm. now running Facebook's live media rights division. Uh, hired me and said, go build us out a sports agency. And I had no clue what I was doing. Right. Uh, I'd never bought and sold. Meteorites helped to create content, right? But never right. had bought and sold. But it did tap into a little bit of previous experience of working in finance, right? In the valuation side and how you go about right.
0: Right.
1: Um, evaluating a commodity. Instead right. of gold or oil, mm-hmm. this commodity was a sports meteorite. Right, Right. Mm-hmm. So applied that previous skill and experience to buying and selling rights, and we did some really cool deals while the time I was there. We, we did the largest international media rights deal for the NFL they've ever done. We did the largest international media rights deal that Major League Baseball and the World Baseball Classics ever done. We ended up with a portfolio of over 70 properties, global football, baseball, basketball properties. Did some really awesome work with NBC, ESPN, Fox, uh Claro, Globo, some of the biggest media companies in, in the Western Hemisphere, and that's really where I learned this, this business of media rights, where now I so happily reside at Octagon.
0: So let's go back to that uh, experience at MP and Silva, where you, where you cut your teeth on, on rights discussions and negotiations. That was at a point in history where the rights game was becoming way more complex Correct with yeah. digital the extensions of essentially of distribution opportunities. Um, so what 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 was going on in terms of the uh, uh, complexities of the deals you were looking at? Were, were they was it getting more complicated by the year because of the opportunities with streaming, direct to consumer, OTT products, things like that?
1: Absolutely, a hundred percent. I think that the the transactional business, the middleman, that brokerage business. Th- is is definitely under a lot of pressure in large part because of technology so before you almost needed that middle person to help facilitate a a sale of your product and get it distributed satellite to satellite and all the technical elements that go behind Mm -hmm. that and now with the advent of direct to consumer uh, and also just generally easier travel and communication rights holders have a much easier time going to broadcasters globally and conducting these deals. So funny enough, one of, you know, we've taken that idea here at Octagon and, and flipped it on its head of what I did at MP and Silva and said, you know, where there are markets where an agency is strong and you don't have that reach, perhaps it is strategic to still work with the likes of an IMG, a Lagardere, an Infront. But at the same time, as the world's getting smaller in large part because of technology, the only sustainable way that a league, federation, or a team builds their long-term business plan and sustainability is having that direct relationship with those broadcasters. Something
0: the sports business never really had.
1: Absolutely. right. So you look at the NFL, for example. uh, Actually, let's look at the NBA, for example, because I think of them as leaders in this space. They've put boots on the ground in over a dozen countries now, and invested heavily, millions, tens of millions of dollars of putting infrastructure into key markets so that they could better understand those key markets and localize the content in those markets and understand what are the new social and digital platforms that are popping up and, and shutting down that they can leverage to distribute their content mm-hmm. even greater into those markets. And that's the future of Meteorite's distribution.
0: Right, it's interesting. Uh, and it just, I think it was released this morning, a podcast that Rico did with John Skipper, talking about DAZN, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Mm -hmm. um, about how they have had such success on the international Mm -hmm. front, and they're in certain countries like Japan and Germany, where they would be, by by most accounts, considered one of the top two or three media companies for sports in those countries Mm -hmm. because of the nature of Mm direct-to-consumer streaming deals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now they, as you probably know, just expanded to the U.S. Mm -hmm. They launched uh, late September. Um, so talk about that, how because you're covering both buy side, should be sell side, like rights holders themselves looking for for deals. And I assume some uh, buy side. You're looking at a very complex ecosystem now of things where without question, because of the uh, amount of cord cutting, cord shaving, et cetera. The digital stuff is arguably, depending on the territory and the specific sport, mm-hmm. more important than it was when you first got into this business, let's say, what, five years ago, yeah. whatever it was. So talk about that. like, And I know a lot of it is based on Octagon's focus on mm-hmm. analytics mm-hmm. and kind of ROI focus and things like that, even in the description of the media rights consulting business of Octagon, which I was reading. It's 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 a lot about measurement. It's a lot about return ROI, which wasn't the kind of copy we would have read on these things five totally. years ago. So talk about that, because this is new to Octagon.
1: Absolutely. So, so, we're, yeah, mention that. We're, we're 13, 14 now, months old. We've uh, We have found that exactly to your point, our industry, because of the advent of digital distribution and the data that comes from that in terms of how are fans consuming? Where are they consuming? What are they consuming? Tuning in, tuning out. We can actually measure a lot more about engagement, and we can return that information back to the league, the federation, the team, or if our client is on the acquisition side, a broadcaster, return it back to them to help them create a leverageable position in a negotiation. The, the days of conducting media rights deals over 18 holes of golf are done there's there's so much pressure on the on the legacy model of linear distribution the ad market is shifting the eyeballs are shifting that and and the dollars in terms of the cost of rights fees are increasing so astronomically the margin of error that you can make as a distributor meaning a uh, a pay TV channel or a mm-hmm. digital channel are, are, A skinny bundle Yeah, right? uh, there's so much more pressure put on them and there's there's so much smaller room to make the error When you're making a $9 billion 10 year investment on a set of media rights, you need to know about the performance and everything underneath the hood about what you can do and how monetizable those rights can be through different means, that's where Octagon truly has the unique value proposition Listen, when I thought about coming here, the truth is uh, there was concern about does the industry really need another media rights consultant? There's a lot of smart men and women that have been doing this for way longer than Octagon's been in this business. And what ultimately was the most compelling point and has proven fruitful uh by virtue of us having over a half a billion dollars of rights under advisory in our first year. We've got clients on five continents. We've got banks as clients, private equity firms as clients. Uh, We've got legacy, traditional media folks, content acquisition projects. Uh, We've got leagues, federations, athletes now as content distributors, Mm -hmm. as clients. So it's all been proven out that data and who's got the best information – and not just that information but how to make it actionable and insightful that's what's going to be the differentiator in negotiating the next future set of media rights deals because we're so tied into Interpublic Group because Octagon's the the sports arm mm-hmm. of IPG we control 37 billion dollars worth of media spend per year wow there are 45 analysts just within the Octagon media group that are churning away globally every day on measurement, social listening, fan profiling, ad spending, sub carriage fee analysis, uh, you name it, that I just truly think it's it, It's a lot different than just going out and being able to be really smart, have relationships, and buy Nielsen data.
0: Okay, so here's a question for you. Kind of in the, in the old world of media rights, a lot of it was focused on essentially just television linear television mm-hmm. which essentially had one currency in the marketplace which was ratings nielsen ratings mm-hmm. let's just talk about the us market we're looking at an environment right now where distribution is a c- can be quite broad on different proprietary platforms with different measurement approaches so if you if you let's say call this the age of comprehensive measurement for these deals yeah How do you deal with the fact that if part of the distribution plan includes, let's say, a direct-to-consumer that's running off of, uh, I don't know, New Lion Mm -hmm. or uh, Playmaker Video or Delta Tray or something like that, um, part of it's going off of Twitter, part of it's going off of Facebook, Amazon, Mm -hmm. like Amazon running U.S. Open this past fall or late late summer. How do, you, how do you wrestle with the fact that those are all different proprietary measurement environments? It's I hadn't really thought about that until you're describing this.
1: Yeah, so I, I think, again, this goes back to you need as many tools in the tool shed right. as possible. And when you have a, a team behind you globally that is tapping into proprietary measurement tools, let me give you an example of that it's one thing to say analytics and proprietary. Right. We're able to help three of the five largest U.S. sports leagues understand projected audiences in unaudited markets globally where we can help influence and uh, and explain to them why their performance was X, Y, or Z. So we'll actually... Just
0: from a media standpoint or just fandom uh, generally? It it,
1: it takes into account social. uh, It takes into account linear side of measurement these guys are whiz kids right so they're going to go back to these leagues and say if you program and schedule these games at these times your projected audience on an unaudited channel channel is going to be within this range and we're going to help them understand conversations and relationships with their broadcasters to say hey broadcaster xyz in spain or in Brazil, you should probably highlight this match to be shown on your broadcast because you're going to get a 3% or a 13% bump. And and the way in which we're measuring this is it's social, it's digital, it's the traditional kind of linear measurement, um, it's fan profiling on a market-by-market basis, it's going in and taking surveys, the old-school way of just understanding fans and how they work in that marketplace and then it's also the relationship piece and i think that's when we're talking about themes on this relationships are so critical in this industry right so being able to call the the ceo of uh, a major media distribution company and and really understand what is moving the market in france and and what what are the tools that we should be empowering our client with to make your broadcast better um that those are the those are the different Challenges that you po- pointed out too, and I think you touched on something else that's really interesting, which is how do you make a decision? We help our clients with this every day. How do you make a decision of how to distribute your con- mm-hmm. your, your your content, mm-hmm. right? And it's, so it's usually divided amongst three different elements, right? It's territory, it's platform, and then it's your own KPI. Is it reach? or Is it revenue? Right. Typically, at least so we know what
0: wins in the sports business. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, usually the answer to the reach revenue question right. is both.
0: That, that literally came up as a point in the Skipper podcast that I listened to this morning. So check it out. And he he gave the right answer, which is revenue will almost always come first. It's, it's
1: true. And, and but, but that's
0: a really interesting question. And I just, just let me interject a, a, a second kind of related question. Since some of the media distribution is not going to be in the form of paid media rights, but can be quite influential in the success of the product in media – such as free highlights mm-hmm. on, uh, on YouTube or Snapchat Discover Channel or something like that. Do you get into those weeds too? A thousand percent. I think you just
1: touched on something that is going to revolutionize the way that distribution and also pricing on specific sets of rights. Uh, will, we're going to see this evolution play out over the next five years. So the average consumer's time spent watching content General entertainment or sports, it's shrinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The The snackable uh, consumption of content, however, is growing. I call it sports the
0: highlights market. industrial complex, yeah. which all the leagues are complicit in. So, so
1: look at Premier League, right? Premier League's domestic deal that they just went through for billions of dollars uh, for all the, the, the live rights to their full set of games. BBC gets Match of the Day. It's a program that goes over the high. It's kind of like your sports center, right? Match of the Day rights, or what we call the highlight package rights, were not even 5% of the total value of the whole set of rights that were sold. Okay. And yet, it's one of the most watched programs across the entire country. So, Right, I th- but that goes
0: back to my measurement question. But part of it is that the measurement may not be as... Uh, kind of transferable in terms of the ROI as television ratings. Yeah. Am, I, am I right you, on that one? Or? You're 1,000% yeah, right. Like that's living, a key thing here.
1: We're living in a, in a, in a, in a very much a traditional risk-averse, for right. the most part, uh, business ecosystem that is moving slower than the fan habit right. and fan consumption is.
0: Because of the bankability of 30-second commercials yes. in the television environment, which is not the case with six seconds on Snapchat or... Or five-second tributes on YouTube.
1: Yeah, House of Highlights.
0: Right, right. Good example. Incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science to go clip a bunch of of highlights together and and lay over some interesting influencers and characters into the show, and yet their success is unfounded.
0: There's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I and mean, that that's kind of the point. Like you could make an argument. I don't know if you like in the analysis you guys do, but I th- I would imagine that for certain sports, if you were to analyze the um, aggregated tr- digital media and social media consumption for certain sports, uh, it would actually exceed oh, yeah. what you're seeing in television consumption from, from an age group, let's say Gen Z. 100%.
1: Yeah.
0: And so that's interesting because that's not being necessarily arbitraged the same way and as I, the television stuff and I, because it, you really can't financially.
1: A thousand percent. So the leagues are still going to get the biggest check cut to them from your traditional right. broadcasters, and the broadcasters are going to hold on to and lock up as much content as they possibly can, so as to build the the wall even higher uh, to try to stave off these new incumbents from right. creating new distribution outlets right. that are more in line with the next generation's consumption right. so it's it's at the behest of the league something that we deal with all the time to think about specific carve-outs and strategic uh, packaging of rights where they still don't they don't necessarily cannibalize the the linear broadcast where Fox and CBS and ESPN uh, are paying a trim in are paying tremendous amounts of rights fees, and yet they're still able to reach uh, another audience And we see this, you know, what I think, Tom, is going to be interesting, we see this a lot with some clients on the acquisition side around the direct-to-consumer conversation. So some of the more aggressive and well-established leagues have started years ago their own direct-to-consumer applications. Yes, like Game Pass. Game Pass, MLB.tv. Yeah, NBA. And the next awkward conversation that's going to come up I believe between the, the 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 buyers, the big buyers of this content, and the leagues, is I don't want you to go direct to consumer anymore. If I'm going to I couldn't a- agree with you
0: more. I, I'm surprised that hasn't exploded already as a major issue, because it seems like everybody is—I say everybody—rights holders. You know this better than I. I guess are trying to think they can have it both ways.
1: Hundred percent. Okay hundred percent. And I so understand that, if
0: I were in my old job, I'd probably be wanting to do the same thing. But to me, we're, we're kind of at this inflection point mm-hmm. on this issue that if you really want to go direct to consumer, you have to be prepared to play the long game to build your audience, to manage that audience, the churn, customer acquisition, customer retention. It's a, It's a different skill set.
1: If the NFL were to go direct to consumer, they would have to sell – 115, 116 million subscriptions to their OTT product to replace their TV deal.
0: I never... So you actually... This is the kind of figured stuff that out, like guy. back of the napkin. This okay, is, this, this is <laughs> the well, stuff some we smarter do. people than us figured that out. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the kind it's a of. a really interesting point, or or what if can you, you, you took a marquee event? What if you made what if you made uh, like they're doing uh, Thanksgiving? They're doing the uh, Tiger Phil match as a digital pay per view.
1: I and I love it. I at SBJ, Are you going to buy it? Talking, you, you probably can get it. a
0: password on that one. Yeah, Just text it to me, please.
1: I will. I will not. I will not. Exactly. The I'm a huge fan of what AT and T and Turner, you know Warner Media and right. Turner's doing right mm-hmm. now. It, it, to your point about we're at an inflection point. There's so much pressure on revenue in this industry right now because costs are going up and eyeballs are shifting. You have to take risks. I talked about this a little bit right. the other week at SBJ that those that take measured, albeit um, calculated risks are the ones that 5 10 years from now will still be relevant. And if you are if you are remaining in a model that is what worked for 10 years ago, you're dead in 10 years. Yeah. And so what is Warner Media doing that's so revolutionary? Well, first of all, they're undertaking a, a brand new type of content, right? This playoff 1v1 Tiger versus Phil matchup. And the way in which they're distributing it, it's never been done before. They are going to leverage the power of Telco and AT&T. They're going to have a docu-series type of hard knocks approach through premium content and HBO. They're going to offer editorial content, millennial-focused content through Bleacher. They're going to offer pay-per-view through Linear and Bleacher Report Live. There's never been such a, a... uh, proliferation of content distribution under one hood for one sporting event discovery right they're taking a different approach to golf right they're gonna try to own golf outside of the US they're gonna try to own golf TV right as a vertical they're gonna uh, gosh 12 years and two billion dollars about
0: with the PGA tour right yeah. yeah yeah
1: and and their whole idea is we're not we're not stopping there We're going to create the community and the lifestyle around golf. So there's a lot more they're going to be announcing shortly around golf TV and what that is Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of programming and and, and events and live content and shoulder programming and social content. These are two examples of pushing the envelope, trying to do something totally different. Absolutely.
0: And by the way, also going back to the R&R question, so the revenue versus reach which to me is one of the key questions that you have to wrestle with right now and I'm sure you're doing this in all your consulting conversations <laughs> is that particularly as it relates to young people especially Gen Z mm-hmm. uh, it's it's quite evident that they're not growing up as the same potential consumers of the of the big 5 you know that whistle sports report a few weeks ago was a bit of a wake up call where over 50% of men 18 to 21 said they preferred non-traditional sports other than the big 5 it seems like if the focus is, is put too heavily on revenue, you really have, will have a long-term problem vis-a-vis mm-hmm. the reach and fan development. So it seems like the fan development aspect with younger audiences has to be part and parcel of any of these deals right now.
1: It has to be. It has to be. We advise, it depends on the client and how established they are and what their own objectives are and what their runway is in terms of how they're looking at business moving forward. There has to be a blended approach for some clients reach should be more important than revenue for some clients revenue should be a bigger slice of the pie not the whole pie never the whole pie uh, above reach and I think it you have to take it on a case-by-case basis and really consult with your with your client what they are prioritizing that said the the massive amount of new distribution platforms the likes of VMVPDs, the Fubos of the world, the YouTube TVs, the direct-to-consumer offerings, the new OTT offerings from the traditional legacy media folks. There's so much more buying activity that I think some leagues are getting ahead of themselves trying to take the early check and not really understanding that we're truly, to steal a line from Russell Wolf, who just Mm -hmm. got appointed the head of ESPN Plus, we're in the uh, the first inning of a very long game. Yeah, I saw that. Oh. You know, and 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 so is is the move to go to ESPN Plus because uh because they're going to grant you a a a new platform that you've never been able to to get exposure for mm. in the US and and accept a barter deal where maybe they cover some production and maybe there's a rights fee involved or do you hold out and hope that you can get a better deal from another player like DAZN who's been really aggressive in the market, or even there's a a linear player out there for you that um, wants to throw you on their OTT networking and guarantee you some some discoverability on their pay TV channel or maybe even their free-to-air. So these are the types of things that we all need to think about at Octagon for our clients is what's the best platform for you? Every platform is so different and there's never been more platforms to think about but everyone's buying on the general entertainment content side. 12 billion dollars Netflix is putting into original programming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's never a stunning been... number. Oh my gosh! Last night, when I was at this venture uh, event, I, I was listening to one of the co founders of a company called Brat. You familiar with Brat? Mm-hmm. Fascinating company, they are putting together millennial focused YouTube distributed. Uh, general entertainment dramedy uh, content and their production costs are 180th of what Netflix is and their numbers are staggeringly high in terms of engagement so here's a there are
0: brat channels on YouTube right now yeah I think don't
1: quote me on the name but it stuck with me I think it's something called chicken girls is one of their shows okay and their audience is that audience that everyone wishes to have Um, so anyway, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole on, on, on them, but the idea here is it's a great time to be a rights holder and have good to premium content available because OTT opens up this idea of windowless programming, right. but that that can be your downfall as well. If yeah. you're going to place too much emphasis on just getting exposure and not the revenue side... Well, then how are you going to keep the lights on? So yeah. that's where we have to always consult with our clients on what's the best platform uh, and what's the best balance for for them.
0: Will clients ask your opinions about some of their digital initiatives oh, or yeah. social media there's, initiatives? There's yeah.
1: not... We've, ne- we've never had a, a client in our 13, 14 months now not either out of the gate ask us about digital or include that in, a, in okay. the very first meeting. And... If you are a president, an EVP, an SVP of a league, you're looking after the media side. If you're not thinking digital first now, right. you're probably out of a job in 12 right.
0: months. Wow. Before we get into the final questions, uh, I got to ask you this. It, it's a really exciting business you're in. What's the biggest challenge you have day to day?
1: I think it's the newness. Yeah. It's the biggest challenge, but it's the biggest
0: excitement. The There's new- no precedent.
1: They're, no, Octagon's never done this before, right. right? Well, for the
0: company and even for the business, yeah, of the reinvention of, of of the media deals world.
1: Totally. So it's all new, right? The the, the piece for, for Octagon, such a well-established 35 years of being a market leader in the sports marketing and talent representation side to be in this space, that part is new. The fact that literally every three weeks, a new platform is popping up with, a new take on distribution, uh, and just even keeping being mindful of of all these different transitions in distribution methodologies and strategy. That part's new. Where the money is all shifting, that's new. So it is an exciting time to be a media consultant. Candidly, I think, going back to the theme of luck, I think we've been a bit lucky to have started this business when we did, because there's never been more questions being asked by both the buy side and the sell side, the leagues, the the rights holders, the federations, right, and the distributors, of what content works, what con- how much should I be spending on that content, how much is my content worth, how do I package that content, how do I bifurcate the rights, is it worth, is it all worth the same together, or should I be separating my digital rights, and then within digital, we've got a whole litany of rights that we can go to market and sell what are the values of those rights that's been a uh, that's where we've had our most success yeah. in the deep weeds of valuation analytical work and the the fun but challenging piece of it is to keep an eye on the market keep our ear to the ground build a brand new business and get the industry's attention that we're taking a very different approach to media rights consulting
0: yeah Wow, my head is spinning. And by the way, I'd add one more thing. That all coincides with the reality that we're talking about: new generations of consumers, digital natives, yeah. who have grown up with a completely different, in a completely different media environment, with different kinds of needs, interests, expectations, and they are the consumers of tomorrow that we have to care most about. Um, you see the aging of the mainstream sports television or sports fan, mm-hmm. uh, and the television viewer, and things like that. Like the
1: NFL and Fortnite, right? What they just did. I, I think constantly. that's a great deal.
0: Yeah, the, you guys heard about that. Uh NFL did a uh a deal with the most, probably the most popular video game and uh, I don't know if it's the world but certainly America right now, Fortnite, uh just to seemingly to get in on the branding action uh and uh an attempt to get in front of especially teenagers. Yeah. Uh, which is a smart move, I think.
1: And and I think that's the other thing we talked about this before. Uh, we hopped on the microphone as it pertained to music. The crossover part, I think you're going to see a lot more consolidation on the distribution side, which we could talk about at a later date. But I think on the rights holder side, a lot more cross-promotion. They're going to have to play a lot nicer with non endemics in the sports space to your point to grab that audience find out where they are now here's the great part about technology we know where the audiences are we know what they're doing we have the tools to track all of that right but how making an authentic connection which we could maybe agree to disagree on the Fortnite nfl if it was necessary was it strategic yes does it have benefit absolutely is it authentic i don't know about that
0: but I, I didn't say it was. I just said it was an interesting <laughs> idea. Yeah. But I think
1: you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of uh, you know whether it be esports or other kinds of entertainment content. You're gonna see a lot more integration where there normally wasn't in the past few years. Right.
0: But teams. I'll I'll end the, the the main part of this conversation with this point. And here's the rub, in my opinion. For the last fifty years, the sports media business has been pretty simple structurally. It's you present content and you interrupt it with ads for 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes, four minutes, et cetera. And that has worked really beautifully for what we often call the television industrial complex. That is not going to be the case in the new world of media, and we have ample evidence now to see that's true. It will not go away tomorrow or next week or next year or in three years, but it is declining. So that idea of kind of messing with the formula – as Mel Karmazin called it when he learned about Google and measurability of advertising, fucking with the magic. Like, that's a real issue long term. Because this generation is being raised in an environment of on-demand with little to no commercial interruption. And 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 I I know I rant about this all the time, but I I think it's really obvious that this is going to affect the business in pretty dramatic ways.
1: It already has. Facebook, Amazon. Right. Right. I don't know. We couldn't. You couldn't have this this podcast today without bringing these folks up, right? <laughs> right? Because everyone keeps talking about the fangs, but in particular Facebook and Amazon, because they've been the most active uh, in the in the sports uh, media rights space the last couple of years. Right. And the question is: Are they going to be serious players in this mm-hmm. space?
0: Comes up in every conversation, including the one with Skipper today. By the way, let's go ahead.
1: And the and and the truth is. Well, first of all, before we get to the truth, look at, the, look at the, the, the business plans for each, right? And where revenue is being generated. Amazon is what we would call an SVOD product, mm-hmm. right? Subscription video yeah. on demand. Amazon Prime at least, yeah. And w- with a really aggressive and interesting advertising model to be introduced in the near future. Right. But for now, they're, they're an SVOD. You've got Facebook, which in the world of Zuckerberg is you know Facebook free for all mentality. It's an AVOD, it's an Advertising Video On Demand platform. To your point about disruption and sustainability, you've been working in media longer than I. Name me a, a distributor that has ever survived on just one revenue stream, whether it be just advertising or just subscribers, that's still around today.
0: Well, the legacy television companies have essentially just well, on advertising right?
1: advertising and sub fees carriage deals
0: yeah but that's relatively recent in the history of television the carriage deals but no but but generally speaking one reason why we saw the transition or the extension of sports business from broadcast television to cable was the dual revenue stream yeah. trope you know this idea is like well you know espn's getting what seven my seventy per subscriber eight dollars per subscriber you do as i say in my class you do the math It's a lot of money. And by the way, when you see subscription declines, subscriber declines, you know how serious that is, this top-line revenue Mm -hmm. loss that will affect rights and things like that. But yeah, that's a really fair point. And I think that's one reason why people are so intrigued by Amazon more so than the others. Because at the end of the day, Facebook is very simply just an advertising business. 99 or so percent of their revenue is advertising. We all know that. And advertising ultimately has to be presented in one of two ways. Either it's going to be integrated into the presentation of content, mm-hmm. or around the content, or it's got to be interrupting the content, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a pre-roll video or a mid-roll video or something like that. So there's only so many ways you can actually do it, uh, but ultimately the audience has to be accepting of that solution, whatever it may be.
1: I couldn't so if we want to see certain
0: that. YouTube videos, like an NFL highlight, they have an awesome highlights package, you got to watch a, a, usually a 15 or 30 second ad before you start. And i 'm willing to take that deal in that context, but when i 'm watching NFL football on Sunday, it can drive me and most others insane when I know there's a three or four minute ad pod mm-hmm. you know it's just it's it's really challenging again and this is uh some someone who's been around for a while saying that, but imagine if it's if it's a nineteen year old Wow,
1: and I think amazon okay. uh they've got a leg up because they they've got the opportunity if they wish to Move on it to create for the first time really a third stool, a third leg to the stool, which is on the ecom side.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: so that I, I, we haven't really seen them tap into that yet right. with their live media rights. Well, on Twitch a little bit, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sure. Right. No. And that. And look, I think th- for those of us that were around the business when they bought Twitch, which I think was 2012 or 13, many of us, like when Google was launched in the late 90s, like, how's this? Like, what's what's the appeal of Twitch? Yeah. Boy, were we stupid. Um, When you have Adam Silver saying that NBA games should look more like Twitch, when you have the NFL now doing Thursday night games partly on Twitch, Mm -hmm. uh, and you realize that they're tapping into something to your very point, multiple uh, opportunities for uh, what I'd call uh, revenue uh, diversity, Mm -hmm. um, alternative broadcasting approaches. So if you want to watch Andrea Kramer and Hannah Storm instead of uh, Troy and Joe – fine i mean that's clearly the future so it's of all the ones out there
1: deal by the way
0: oh i didn't know that congratulations that's a really smart point but i think we're going to just see that as a standard uh standard fare for sports broadcasting broadly defined that we will have choices about what we want to see so if i if i'm a um a stats guy and i want to see a, a hardcore analytics feed great go to town If you want to see something that's more lighthearted and humorous, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, we should probably wrap because I know you have some business to do. Uh, We could go on forever. So um, it's actually uh, that last part of the conversation is a good segue into one of our standard questions. How do you keep up with all this? How do you stay smart?
1: I I, I think it starts with the people around you, right? So I've got a tremendous team around me that that are tapped into so many different parts of the sports business ecosystem and not just media, right? It, the sponsorship side, the talent side. So one is the the interconnectivity of uh, and an advantage of working at a place like Octagon. The second part, which is so lame to say because probably everyone on your podcast has, <laughs> has said it, is read, 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 read. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the students that are listening and don't have access to some of these expensive subscriptions. There's a great free thing called Google. Just spend so much time. Twitter is my number one tool uh, for information. And just following folks like yourself and and many others globally that are in and around, for me, the sports media Mm -hmm. business is a great tool to learn from. And then I think the third part is getting out in the market and learning directly from others. There's a right. lot of great events, uh, a plug for NYVC right. here, something right. near and dear to Tom and I. Uh, yep. But there's a lot of great events in, in your local communities, in your local cities, online. Mm-hmm. And
0: meetup group, conferences. Absolutely. And Go by ahead. the way, conferences, as I liked, I've i pointed out many times in this podcast, Many of them put, uh, uh, put up as video on demand in the aftermath. Yeah. So MIT Sloan, et cetera. So if you can't make these conferences, there's a lot of stuff to watch.
1: Abe Modcor is going to kill me for saying this <laughs> if he ever listens to this podcast. Hang out in the hotel lobby of sports business journals,
0: multitude of events. Spoken as a sponsor, I might add, of some of these conferences.
1: And uh, <laughs> this is only for the young student population. Uh, and, just, and just pull someone aside pick their brain you know they were you two once so uh, I think you're gonna find if you're sincere if you're knowledgeable and you hustle that you're 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 gonna do fine in this industry
0: okay well you kind of answered a a little bit of the second second question which was um, could could you offer some career advice especially for the young people listening
1: I think be open-minded I had no clue this is what I was going to be doing with my life and if you ask me what I'm going to be doing in 15 years I have no idea what that looks like but as long as you are open-minded, as long as you truly have a passion for what you do, whether it be in sports or out of sports, you're more likely to be successful. is some of the best advice I ever got. You're, you're most likely to be successful when you do something you care about. Uh, and, 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 and the money and the success and everything else will come after as long as you are truly passionate about what you wake up every day and do.
0: Good. Actually, related final question to that last point. How, how is it best for people to reach out to you generally? I'm not suggesting you give your email right now, but how do you like to be approached by people that are looking to get into Octagon or work for you or get to know you or something like that? Yeah. What I, works? Twitter. Okay.
1: Twitter, I, I have a lot of, of DMs, right. a lot of conversations on Twitter with folks. I think that you get a sense of what I'm interested in by what I'm either tweeting about or retweeting about. Right. And that, you know, just generally, whether it be through LinkedIn or Twitter, I have a dozen conversations a week with different folks. Uh, And I use it, too, as a tool to connect with others, not just a tool to connect with
0: me. Right. Wow. Dan Cohen. Thank you, man. Um, By the way, I don't even think I actually said your title in the beginning. So we've been talking to Dan Cohen, who's the SVP of Media Rights Consulting for Octagon. We've got to give one shout-out for Rick Dudley because I believe he was instrumental in hiring you. Oh, my gosh. Rick's the man. So he was an influential guy for both me and Dan. So uh, way back when, he hired me when he was the president of NHL Enterprises and I came in as head of digital, um, which is obviously a key moment in my sports business career. And he was involved in – or he was the one who hired you, what, a year year and a half ago, two years ago? It
1: was 13, 14 months ago. Rick Phil DiPicciato, right. John Shea, Simon Wardle, right. Uh, really, the the brain trust of Octagon, all of them individually and together as, as a group have been incredibly supportive. Uh, gosh, I hope they're listening to this.
0: I was going to say also, the other thing I just that occurred to me was like thinking about Rick, is that if they gave us a business version of Twenty Three and Me, like in the sports industry. Most of us that would have like ninety percent Rick Dudley somewhere because he was at the NFL. He was ended up hiring that whole generation of NFL guys who are all over the place. Steve yeah. Phelps and Schwabel and, and look Garber. At success. I, well, that's what I mean. It's quite interesting. But so, so Rick is. Uh, I'm hoping quite, I quite can I
1: can rub off just a little sliver of that.
0: Yeah. Well, you're you're around some good people and a, a really good company. So we wish you well. Thank, you, thank um, you. Thanks for your support of NYVC Sports. It's a pleasure to serve with you on the board of that, and we hope. We've got good things ahead, and also for your support of Columbia, you've been a good, uh, good friend of the program. Thank, Thank you, Dan you so Cohen. much for having me. All right, everybody, that was Dan Cohn of Octagon. Um, great conversation on one of the most interesting and fraught topics in the entire sports business right now. As usual, you know I like to talk about it, so it's, it's good to have you, um, Joe. We'll look forward to having you back next time when you hopefully <laughs> listen all the way through this pod, all the way through this one, uh, and to everybody else. Please reach out if you want to talk or have any questions, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for having me.